Welcome back, SGO listeners. This is our third installment on the Keeping Up with the Chemo series on the monitoring and follow-up of tramentinib. I am Tracy Lindholm, a gynecologic oncologist at Baylor College of Medicine, coming to you from the SGO Education Committee, Chemotherapy Subcommittee, where I am joined tonight by... I'm Jennifer McDonald. I am an oncology clinical pharmacist at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I'm David Gershenson, a gynecologic oncologist at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. In Houston. I'm Rebecca Porter, a GYN medical oncologist at the Dana Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And I'm Christina Davis. I'm an oncology clinical pharmacist at the University of Colorado. Dr. Gershenson, in our last podcast, you mentioned that once people start tramitinib, you typically follow them monthly, uh, either virtually or in person. What can you expect to go over and what questions do we need to be making sure to ask our patients when we see them at each of those visits? Well, just in general, how they're feeling. You know, the, the most common side effects that can be an issue with tramentinib are skin rash and GI side effects, mainly diarrhea, although nausea a little bit. Uh, The other ones are fatigue and hypertension. So I think you want to know in general how the patients are feeling, but I've found that the conversation usually focuses most of the time on either skin rash or diarrhea. And so I think you want to understand how they're doing with that. Again, prophylaxis I think is key in trying to reduce the skin rash issues or prevent them. You want to really ask the patient about the the common side effects. That's definitely great. I know when I see patients too, sometimes I ask them the weird side effects too, because sometimes they get so wrapped up in diarrhea or skin, they forget to tell you about some of the other things going on. I guess with that, Dr. Davis, is there anything in particular, or I guess Dr. Porter or Dr. Gershenson that you do um, to help try and uh, monitor compliance and adherence to these medications for patients? So one thing we do at our facility is we actually have an oral oncology medication adherence checklist that we go through for all patients that are on any oral oncology meds. So if they are coming in monthly, as mentioned previously, then it triggers to complete an oral onc adherence checklist for those patients, just asking basic questions. When did you start this medication? How often are you taking it? What's the dose? And then how comfortable do you feel with the dosing? Are you missing any doses and why? And so it also kind of asks about side effects as well. So I usually go in and talk to pretty much all of the patients that are on orals to assess for these things. If it is a telehealth visit, then either sending them messages or following up via phone as well. I think we have similar program in place here in Boston where our um, oral chemotherapy pharmacists play a big role in actually reaching out to the patients before they start the medication at the time of start and then um, frequently during their treatment to ask these same types of questions and also collect um, metrics of adherence as well. That's really great to know. Dr. Porter, what would make you have a dose adjustment or is there anything that you would actually think of as far as adverse effects where you would hold giving tramitinib for a period of time? I think, you know, the side effects that we've been talking about the most in terms of um, skin rashes, severe diarrhea, certainly hypertension that's uncontrolled, elevation of LFTs that are, you know, beyond what we are comfortable continuing at. These are all things that will frequently result in either dose holds and then eventually dose reductions. Dr. Davis, when you are working with your medical oncologist or your gynecologic oncologist, how long will you typically hold these oral medications, not any of these oral medications, how long will you typically hold the tramentinib for these adverse effects? So the 
The general rule of thumb is to hold until the toxicity is at least grade one or less. So it really is physician dependent. Some of ours prefer for things to be closer to baseline, depending on how severe the toxicity was. But in general, once it's grade one or less is usually when you can restart therapy. And then Dr. Gershenson, is there anything that would make you stop the tremetinib therapy altogether? Uh, yes. If they have, you know, sev fairly severe side effects, and that again, most commonly skin rash or diarrhea, you know, if they're having grade three or four and you stop it and you're waiting for them to come back to baseline or to less than grade one or to grade one, uh, you can restart it. But if they've already had severe toxicity, you may restart it at a one dose level lower. But then if they develop the same grade three or four toxicity again, that would be, for instance, an indication in cases to discontinue the drug altogether. Those are all great points to keep in mind. And obviously, we always make it patient specific. I guess we've talked a little bit about the rash and the recommendations to start with at least some topical clindamycin and then escalate probably pretty pretty quickly to steroids and or doxycycline to manage that toxicity. Is there any recommendations for diarrhea when you're counseling patients that you give them from the beginning as far as when to maybe start an anti-diarrheal medication and what to take? Well, certainly for grade two or worse uh, toxicity, we would probably start Imodium or something like that. Hydration is very important and the number of stools per day needs to be monitored. You would usually, again, if it's grade two or greater, you would interrupt the trametinib until the diarrhea had resolved to grade one and then restart it. If, if they're having grade two, then you would restart it at the same dose. But again, if it were grade three, for instance, you probably would restart trametinib at a one dose level reduction. I don't know how often either of you guys see this in your practice, but sometimes I have to re-educate patients to hold they're so used to having constipation with this diagnosis sometimes is have to go back and re-educate that they shouldn't be taking their stool softeners or their laxatives too. So that can be an important counseling point as well. Yes, I agree with that. And also just for more mild cases of diarrhea, education around diet as well and trying to stick to a lower fiber, more bland diet, and just educating patients on the types of foods to avoid, avoiding excessive alcohol, as Dr. Christensen said, maintaining very good hydration. That's definitely something that's important to think about. I know another side effect that can occur is the mucositis. What do you counsel patients on as far as the management when that occurs? So in general, I would say that a lot of patients actually feel sensitivity in their mouth before they truly see, you know, like a sore or anything. And so I do a lot of education around really good communication, like Dr. Porter had mentioned before, in terms of communicating to the clinic if and when they start to feel any sort of pain or sensitivity in the mouth. Important counseling points are avoiding, you know, things that could potentially irritate that. So anything that's spicy, alcohol, for sure, anything that's alcohol-based, alcohol-based mouthwashes potentially be really painful. And then and, you know, topical treatments that we use commonly, things like magic mouthwash, which include viscous lidocaine to help numb the area, things like that. Additionally, sometimes we have used dexamethasone solution, which if you can swish and spit that 
tends to help with some of the inflammation in the mouth as well. I would definitely agree with all those uh, recommendations. We use ma uh, magic mouthwash a lot. In GOG 281, the frequency of grade three mucositis was very low. It was like 2%. So it was not a major problem in, in our study. Uh, and patients off protocol, I've not found it to be a major problem. But if it does occur, I think the uh, the recommendations that have been articulated are are very important. I know one of the complaints that I can sometimes hear more commonly from patients is edema and kind of all over, even uh, kind of facial and periorbital edema. Any recommendations for that? Or do you just consider dose reduction at that point? That's a tricky area, I think, and one for which there's not they're to me they're not real clear guidelines but yes i think dose reduction in situations that are beyond just mild edema usually in the lower extremities may be indicated and then you you might consider going back up on the dose if that resolves and trying it again i have not found that edema has been a super common problem in our practice but it does occur and sometimes can be fairly uh, significant. So we've generally managed that with the dose reductions if it's moderate to severe. Great. And I know one of the other things I consider with especially lower extremity edema is when the last time we got an echocardiogram was too, just to make sure that we're not missing, you know, some cardiac dysfunction that may be occurring and showing as edema. And sometimes physical therapy can be very helpful as well for these patients. But I certainly agree with the echocardiogram if, if they haven't had one in the last two to three months. I know one other toxicity that we've mentioned in our previous podcast on tremetinib is ocular toxicity. And that's something that we're seeing associated with some of the other new drugs that we have in the oncology space. How do you educate patients on what ocular toxicities they may experience? And what is something that would prompt you to reach out to their optometrist or ophthalmologist between their regularly scheduled visits for an additional exam? Well, we try to educate patients to be cognizant of whether they're developing any blurred vision. And that's something we try to ask about at each visit. And if they are, that to me is, can be a red flag, and that would uh, usually prompt us to recommend a repeat ophthalmologic examination to rule out retinal vein occlusion or retinal issue that would uh, require a discontinuation or holding the medication. Now, sometimes you can it, it improves very rapidly and you can restart the medication, but that is con concerning if they complain of blurred vision. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Gershenson. I feel like there are a lot of patients that don't always report this as early as they should. Like they may be attributed to something else or or maybe they didn't receive as much education up front about how serious the ocular toxicities can be. Of course, the majority of the ocular toxicities seen are grade one and two, but there is the, you know, a very small chance that they could have a more serious ocular toxicity. So I think just really good education about reporting those symptoms is important. And in GOG 281, the uh, again, the frequency was only one or two percent. I suspect it probably gets a little underreported, as been said, but it's an infrequent. But it when it occurs, it's uh, it's important to detect it early on and address it. Say, so I think the last toxicity we briefly wanted to touch on before we conclude was just LFT abnormalities. Do those often occur earlier in therapy? Can you see them late in therapy? And how high might they get in order for you to worry? There are guidelines for that. I've found that they can occur anytime 
in therapy. Probably the longer patients are on trametinib, a little more likely that you're going to see a, a liver function elevation in ALT or AST. Usually in our experience, it's pretty mild and does not require any dose reductions, but there certainly are exceptions. If it's, uh, you know, three to five times greater than baseline, then that may prompt a a dose reduction or an interruption in therapy. Well, this has all been absolutely wonderful information. With this being our last of the three in the series on tramitinib, I'd like to ask each of our speakers to go over what is their take-home point that they want to make sure listeners remember when administering, preparing, or selecting patients for tramitinib. So Dr. Porter, why don't you start with your take-home point? I think my take-home points would be that patients with low-grade serous ovarian cancers that are recurrent after first-line chemotherapy will mostly, I think, all be considered for a MEK inhibitor like trabetinib. I think we're still learning about how to sequence the order of these drugs, but without any contraindication, patients will likely be for this. And that, as mentioned, as an oral chemotherapy drug, uh, there's a lot of education and communication with the patient that's involved in this therapy. Perfect. And Dr. Davis? I think from a pharmacy perspective, what I really emphasize with a lot of patients is that single agent trametinib is not an easy drug to take. As previously mentioned, I think a lot of patients associate an oral medication with it being less toxic or easier to tolerate. And so as Dr. Porter mentioned, a lot of education just around what to expect, types of side effects you can see, really good education uh, regarding management at home so that patients feel comfortable knowing who to call, when to call, and really how to manage those side effects. And Dr. Gershenson? I would mention the selection of patients. So Dr. Porter mentioned in another segment on trametinib uh, the issues around biomarkers. So clearly we do not have the perfect biomarker to select patients, and certainly we don't use biomarkers to exclude patients. So any woman with recurrent low-grade serous carcinoma is a, a candidate for trametinib at some point during her clinical course. The MILO study focused on KRAS mutations and found that like 44% of uh, women who had a KRAS mutation responded versus only 19% without a KRAS mutation responding to benimetinib. In the GOG-281 study, we looked at it as a kind of a composite MAP kinase pathway uh, markers of KRAS, BRAF, and NRAS, and found a similar trend, 50% who had one of those mutations responded to trametinib, whereas only about 10% responded if they didn't. But that, again, does not exclude patients. And I, I will emphasize, as I said, we do not yet have a perfect biomarker So all patients with recurrent low-grade serous carcinoma are candidates. And at some point in the future, I believe we will be able to identify a perfect biomarker or a panel of biomarkers that will allow us to select patients uh, in a better fashion. We have certainly learned new things during this podcast today. I know I have. And we want to sincerely thank each of you, Dr. Gershenson, Dr. Porter, and Dr. Davis for participating in this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed and learned as much as Dr. Hall and I have. And we hope that you will continue to tune into our series as we continue to move forward with new agents approved for the use of gynecologic cancers in women.
The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On The Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.